what happens when you're 17. <laughs> I suppose. I took my uncle out for lunch in Essex about um, a month or two ago, and, uh, and we were in a pub near where he lived, and I, we were finished lunch, we were walking out of the pub, and there was a really loud person at the bar talking to everybody, he said hello to my uncle as we walked past, and as we left, my uncle muttered to me, uh, he's been banned, he was at one time banned from all the pubs in Rayleigh and Thundersley, which are the two sort of mini towns around there. Uh, so I don't know how he managed that, but uh, anybody else? You've been denied entry, you tried again, you couldn't get in? Something that mattered to you? I got thrown out of lots of clubs when I was a kid. <laughs> I, I know, yeah, they wouldn't let me stay. I don't know why. I'm such a nice person. <laughs> it's, it's a strange feeling when you, you, you're not allowed into something. You, you, yeah, you have one shot? I just know it's been very, very hard to be in this country. Okay. Mm -hmm. so tons of money, tons of interest, <coughs> over and over. Uh, and now we are permanent residents. We still have quite So we still are not allowed into France. Still need a visa. It's a lot of difficulty. It's a little islands, that's pretty much where we are. So, anywhere else we want to go, interviews, visas, money, every time. Costs. Costs a lot of money, and it's very annoying. Should we all write a letter <laughs> to yes. whoever's in charge? So, our friends need to be able to get around yeah. without it costing a fortune. Yeah, I, the feeling of being excluded is very awkward feeling. And although some of us may not be able to remember as well as others, but when you're a kid, and perhaps, well, let's see, Emma's the youngest here, of course. Uh, but, you know, when you're at school, do you remember not being allowed to be part of something? Maybe there was a group. And you can get bullied, and we've got some teachers here, and you have to deal with these kind of issues when kids are, are, are kind of bullied or excluded in some way from other groups. It's very difficult as a kid to handle it, isn't it? We want to be in, and we want to be in, in the right places and the right things with the right people. It's so important to us. And uh, I would say that all the things that we would like to get into would love or like not to be excluded from in this earth, they matter, but they don't matter anything as much as like entry into the kingdom of God. Mm. Knowing we have entry and what it takes to have entry is more important than any other entry, any other access that we'll ever have to deal with. So let's read our passage and then we'll talk about it a bit here. Luke 18 verse 9, let's start there. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let's read the next bit after the parable as well, because I think it's relevant. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to, a, to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now this part of what we've read here could go, could go with what we're about to talk about with the parable, or equally could very well go with the next bit, which Dan's going to preach on next Sunday. So Dan's preaching next week on the, uh, the rich, uh, the ruler, the rich person here in the next bit, in verse uh, uh, 18. And, and I think this, sort of, this bit about the children sandwiches the two. It could go with either and perhaps really does go with both. Because it's really all about humility and righteousness in the view of God and justification and who's right and who's in the kingdom and what it takes to get into the kingdom, how to get in. And so let's talk about this. Let's, do, let's look at the context of what's going on. And then I want to ask you what you see in the character of the Pharisee in the parable and in the character of the tax collector and, and their view of God. So we'll talk about that in just a minute. The context here is like a law court. Um, the temple is the place of judgment. It's one of the ways that the Jews, uh, the Jewish people looked at the, the, the temple. The temple is the place where God sits. It's his throne, of course, the Holy of Holies uh, idea. And therefore it's where God sits in judgment on Israel and on the nations. So when you go to the temple to pray, part of the reason for going there to pray is to say, I want to be under your judgment, God. I trust your judgment. And so the Pharisee and the tax collector are there. They're there um, at almost certainly the time of the atonement sacrifice, which took place two times each day. One in the morning at dawn, and the other one at three o'clock in the afternoon. So that was traditionally when people went to the temple to pray. And you'd find a crowd there at dawn, the atonement sacrifice going on, and you'd find a crowd there at three in the afternoon, again, the atonement sacrifice going on. The high priest makes the sacrifice, and at the end of the sacrifice, incense is, is showered across the place. There's an altar and the burning of the sacrifice. And the incense kind of rolls out from the temple across the temple course. And you'd smell it wherever you were. I mean, sometimes you get this. When I was a kid growing up, the playing fields where I played at my school uh, were um, about a mile away from a perfume factory and a soup factory. <laughs> Bachelor Soups and PPL um, perfume manufacturers had had factories next to each other. And so if the wind was in a particular direction, you'd be out there playing football, and all of a sudden across the field would come the smell of tomato soup mixed with perfume. <laughs> and it was a really bizarre thing. We'd all look at each other. What's going on here? What have you, what perfume have you been having, Nigel? <coughs> and wearing it. Anyway, so, but you'd smell this roll, this, it's incense. And of course, we know that the prayers of the saints are like incense, right? In Revelation, it's like they're, they're sweet smelling to God. There's that idea of prayer and incense going together here. And so as the incense is coming down, it signifies that God is pleased with Israel and that uh, he accepts the sacrifice of atonement and therefore Israel can be one with God. And so that's the context of the prayer. If you pray at that time, it's kind of more holy. It's kind of, we've reaffirmed the fact that we have a connection with God, Israel and his people. And so praying at that time is a celebration of that connection with God and the hope that he will especially hear the prayers offered right now at dawn, 
or at three in the afternoon. So this is what's going on here as they are praying at or near uh, in the temple vicinity right there. And, uh, and it's about sacrifice for sin. So the Pharisee and the tax collector. Okay, first of all, what do we learn about the character of the Pharisee from his prayer, from what's going on here? What would you say? What do we learn about him? Now, bearing in mind that this is a sermon about uh, a parable about self-righteousness. Let's be careful not to be self-righteous ourselves in our thinking about the Pharisee. But nonetheless, what do we see about the Pharisee? What is Jesus telling us about the Pharisee in this parable? What do you think? Say that again. He was boastful about his own deeds. So there's some boastfulness inside there. Okay, what else? Looking down on others. Okay, <clears throat> Standing up but looking down at right. other people, yeah? What else? Well, his perspective was, I think, that there was definitely differences, different classes, and that was a good thing. Aha! Mm. Well, that's a very, that's an interesting point. Okay, different classes, or categories of people, in God's eyes, in his own, certainly, but he thinks in God's eyes, and one is better than another. Good point. Good, okay. Other thoughts? What do we... What else do we see here in the Pharisee in his prayer? He felt that he was acceptable to God because of his deeds, and other people probably were hard because of their deeds as well. The focus was on the deeds rather than an attitude of heart. Yeah, so or deeds. Okay, um, good. In that, in that manner, I'll thank you, God, that you even made me and allowed me to pray to you more. Thank you that I can. Okay, good, thank you. Excellent. Anything else? Yeah, um, he's, um, he's, um, he's, uh, he's, um, I'm trying to, uh, he's, he said that, uh, you know, for the fact that you are paying tithes or doing things, doing not a doubt of what they can do to get into the kingdom of God. Okay. So you have to be, you know, a master and then be, uh, um, humble. Okay, all right, there's a humility challenge here, isn't it? Showing off, all right. Yeah, he's kind of showing off, isn't he? Yeah. Excellent, thank you very much. Leon? I, I think he might be a bit insecure, because he's not actually asking for anything, he's not actually saying, he's, no. it's almost like you're saying, this is what I do, here's my rubber stamp, where's my okay. approval? Okay. Is that okay, God? That's right, yeah. right? Yeah, that's enough, yep. He's not actually, he's not actually asking for anything, or he's not being grateful to God, he's, yeah. it seems quite odd, you know, his actual prayer seems quite odd. It does, doesn't it? Anything else? And then we'll move on to the tax collector. Yes, Simon. I don't think he's even aware of how he's spiritual. He's really critical of um, other people. Yeah. He actually thinks it's a good, a good thing. Okay. Yeah. He lacks insight. Or soberness. I mean, Barry talked about that in the sermon, in the um, communion, about that sort of soberness of, of self-examination. He lacks that ability or desire or understanding for the need of it. We're not quite sure, but something's missing there, isn't it? Yeah, we've got this thing. Uh, let's talk about the Pharisee for a moment, and then we'll move on to the tax collector. I, I personally think um, this is something what a Pharisee would have looked like in the day. I'm not suggesting that all Pharisees... Um, didn't have enough teeth. Uh, I'm not, but I don't know. But um, maybe, maybe that's what's uh, making him self-righteous or something. I have no idea. But um, just a few thoughts about the, what the way Jesus tells the parable right here and what it tells us. It says that he told it 
to some who were confident um, of their own righteousness. And the confident word there means a confidence that's ongoing. It's not like I feel confident today, not confident tomorrow. But this is a person who lives their lives in this sort of smug zone of self-confidence in their righteousness. That's where they're at. I think this is Mr. Smug we're looking at right here. Uh, he's separate by himself. Probably he separates himself to pray like this. He's a, he, there wouldn't be a crowd there, but he stands, it appears to be some kind of, in some kind of separation, presumably at least to keep himself separate from the tax collector who would have defiled him. So he doesn't want contact in some way. He sees the tax collector, he observes him, but he has no compassion on him. He doesn't appear to have any desire to help. He's glad to be separated, it appears. Um, he's thanking God that he's superior to other people. That's not a good place to be. Um, in fact, you could say it's an instructional prayer to the less righteous around him. He's praying out loud. That's what you would have done. He's like, thank you, God, that I'm not like other men around here. It's, it's, it's kind of instructional in that way. But of course, it's not really prayer at all. It's actually self-advertisement. Saying, look at me. There's what's going on. The actions somebody mentioned, the tithing and the fasting, is more than is required by the law. You don't have to do it as much as he's doing it. Um, so that's his own desire, we presume. But perhaps he's insecure, as you say, Leon, and does more than he has to do because he feels that makes him more worthy before God in some way. There's very much an I focus. I, where are we? I thank you. I'm not like other men. I fast twice. Fast Fast twice a week, give a tenth of all, I get. There's four I's in the English, there's five in the Greek. So I is the most significant word in his prayer, in his short prayer right there. So, okay, we'll come back to the meaning of that in a minute. But let's talk about the tax collector for a moment now. So, uh, tax collector, what do we uh, learn about him? And, oh, that's, sorry, that's the word to look down. I forgot to mention that. The Greek word for looking down on others is to make light of, to set it, not to despise, to treat with contempt, and so on. Ridiculing and looking down on people. So that's, that's his attitude of heart, looking down on others, ridiculing them, holding them in contempt. Not a good situation uh, to be in. Okay, tax collector. What do we learn about his attitude here, his heart, what's going on with him? What do we see in him? What do you think? What does Jesus reveal to us? in this uh, parable. It's dramatic. It's, it's dramatic. <laughs> yeah, but it is actually. Yeah. yeah. Fitting his pressure quite dramatic. Yeah, it's a very dramatic action showing something is happening deep inside, Sean. I think it was a show of desperation. Like, mm. uh, you know when you get someone so frustrated or so angry or so that you hit something or, you know, hit your fist to a wall or something like that. Mm. It's like mm. almost an like involuntary desperation. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Yes. What I want to do is um, the other guy praying and saying, uh, "How do you pray?" I just want to come to Jesus deeper in his way. The message of grace has come. Mm-hmm. I think the only way we need to uh, catch this uh, phrase mm-hmm. is meeting right so righteousness is what was on the line being touched. Then yes, that person is going to be righteousness. But this is Jesus here. He. There's no grace to attach his prayers to that. 
That's a really interesting and valid point. And I think this is why Jesus um, gives us the summary, which we'll talk more about in a minute, at the end, when he talks about who is justified. And it's the second man who's justified, and not the first one, and why. And so what we're, I think, kind of exploring is, why is it that even, despite the fact, as you say, that at this point, the full teaching about grace is not clear through Jesus, nonetheless, Jesus would hold a Pharisee like that accountable. Which is interesting. So we'll come on to that a little bit more. Thank you. Good. Okay, what else do we learn about the tax collector? What else do we see about him? He's ashamed. He's ashamed. Okay. Doesn't look up. Yeah. It's his last hope. Sorry? It's like it's his last hope. His last hope. Yeah, he's run out of other <coughs> options, it appears. Yeah? Okay. Yeah, Okay, we seem to have a repentant heart. I mean, we don't know all the detail, but we that's the picture I think we're getting, isn't it? Okay. So, any other thoughts? He sees himself as very unworthy, like he stands mm. at a distance. Yes. So there's a sense that he's not, that, that whilst the Pharisee perhaps is looking down on him, mm-hmm. he also is looking down on himself that he isn't worthy, that he's right. not as good as anybody else, yeah. you know, he stands at a distance. But Seems to have greater soberness about that, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, he knows where he's at. Mm. Okay. He has a very clear that he, idea that he's a sinner and he, he needs mercy, that's the only thing mm-hmm. he needs, it's the only thing he's praying for, it's the only thing he's looking for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's really clear about himself. Mm-hmm. Where he's at. Thank you. When he stands at a distance, uh, indicating that he doesn't feel worthy, I think, of the rest of the, uh, the crowd, the group, closer to the temple, he beats his breast. In this cultural context, the, uh, the beating of the breast, and by the way, it's not like a, just a quick thing like this. He's standing there doing this. With it. The, the way you would do this in this culture is to, have, is to have your arms crossed like this, and you'd just be doing this, and he's doing this con- con- continuously. So this is ongoing while he's standing there and praying. And it was never done by men. This is something done by women at a funeral. That's the context. So it's extremely rare. It would be the most incredibly intense anguish to to see a man in this culture do that action would denote that he is desperate. This is his last hope, that he has run out of all other options. That's the the desperate nature of what's uh, going on here. The breast is known in that culture as the location of the heart. Out of the heart, sin comes, Matthew uh, 15, that kind of thing. So he's beating his breast because this is kind of where sin is. And what is he going to do about it? That's what's going on. Of course, it's also a much shorter prayer than the Pharisees. Neither of them are long, but his is shorter. It's more to the point. And crucially, God is the focus, really. Even though he's saying, I'm a sinner, but he needs God's mercy. That's, I think, more of the focus than himself. It's a personal request. He's expressing a need, whereas the Pharisee does not. 
have mercy is the word hilastatai, hilastatai, meaning be propitiated. In other words, let your anger, he's asking God, let your anger be removed from me. He's assuming that God is not accepting him at this point. It's a combination of take my sin away and, 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 and have mercy on me and treat me not according to what I, I deserve. It is specific to the idea of the atonement, which fits with the idea that he's praying at the temple at the time of the atonement sacrifice. It's not a general request for mercy. God, just have mercy on me in a general way. It's God, save me, take my sin away, rescue me from my fate, is what he's saying at this point. Patricia. Just have one more thing. Sure. Thank you very much. So, uh, he is the desperate one, and so he goes there. He, in fact, in the Greek, where it says, um, it's, he says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Actually, it's the sinner. It's not a sinner. Not I'm one of many. I'm just the sinner. I mean, I'm the sinner in, in your presence right now. I'm the one. And he takes it, very, it all in very personally here. So, it's interesting. I, I wonder why... I wonder why Jesus used a parable about, or, or used prayer in the parable as the illustration. Because I don't think the parable is really about prayer. The parable is about the attitude and about um, who is right before God, really. That's the conclusion that Jesus gives us here. Who walks away right with God. But perhaps he uses prayer. Because often in our prayers, our hearts are truly revealed. Out of the, heart, out of the mouth, the heart speaks, the Proverbs say. And whilst that's not true with every single word that comes out of our mouths, it's often the case that the way we pray reveals something about our attitude about ourselves and about God. And so I think that must be one of the reasons why he, he uses this example. So here's what I'd like us to do for a few minutes. We have, um, uh, we have a few, actually not so many, but just a few minutes. Could I ask us just to stop and think for ourselves and talk to the person next to you as to how do we recognize self-righteousness in ourselves, not in other people, crucially here, okay? But can you just turn to someone next to you and discuss this for a minute? How might we be able to recognize self-righteousness in ourselves? That's the first question. And then secondly, how might we develop greater humility to have more the attitude of the tax collector and the Pharisee? So can we just talk about that for a couple of minutes? How can we recognize self-righteousness ourselves and how can we develop greater humility but the first question is the most crucial okay talk to someone need any ideas how do we spot self-righteousness in ourselves things that help us sure yeah the way we drive okay letting other people make mistakes yeah yeah thank you good okay Simon See what they see? Yeah. Asking for their perspective? Okay. All right. Bringing other people's perspectives in to us. Yeah? Good. Okay. Anything else? Uh, Dawn? I kind of took the question differently. I thought when, what, what is it, or how am I when I'm being self-righteous? Or how do I recognize self-righteousness? So in me, it triggers defensiveness. 
So if, if I'm being okay. defensive, if, if, if I feel I'm right, my first response is to defend why I'm right rather than admit I'm wrong. You can admit you're wrong. Anyone, right? No, none of us can relate. Um, but it's <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just me. It's okay, I'm okay with it. It's just me. That's fine. It's fine. The tumbleweed moment is fine for me. Um, that led me to control, kind of, you know, the wanting to control everything. So defensiveness and control brings out. Well, that's how I okay. know I'm being An attempt to control yes, things. Yes, that's how I know. Because there are two possible responses to to someone saying that they think you're wrong. Yeah. One, one is to be. Uh, uh, positive responses. One is to admit that you're wrong, yeah, but the other is to, if you're not sure you're wrong, is to say, I'm not clear about that, but can we talk some more? Yeah. Right, to have an open-mindedness. Which is obviously is, what I do every key. time. I know. We, <laughs> I know. Those two responses we know, go between all the time. We, we know, we appreciate you educating the rest of us. There we go. From your position of great humility. Uh, okay, so moving ahead, Leon. I think, for me, it's the same, same as normally, I, I'm, I feel like, if the red flags for me personally are Sort of being dismissive of people. Okay. Yeah, you know, if somebody says something and I just, you know, I'm just dismissive of what they've said. Right. Um, or um, don't let it touch me. You know. Or um, or uh, if I'm gossiping, it's a really big. Okay. It's a really big. Sort of, mm, you know, a sign of self-righteousness. Yeah, because it's kind of like okay, good point. My, my view of somebody's. You know, I've got the right view. Yeah. Let me tell you what the right view is. Well, let, let me tell you about the type of person who is wrong. Okay. Yeah. Mm, <laughs> so, okay. Asagi and then Dan. I think for me, it's been an area where I feel over time I've learned a lot. And then when I'm <coughs> interacting with someone who doesn't really know as much as me. Yeah, but it's an area where I feel over, I've learned a lot and I, I have a lot of experience. Okay. I might be less, it might be less likely for me to have an open mind towards the person who's attitude if I feel or you haven't heard about this in my friend actually give a chance to think I don't know everything. Yeah, you may know more than the other person, but you don't know everything. Yeah. That's a really interesting thought and I and I'd struggle with that too. Dan? I think for me I can recognise self righteousness in myself if I'm complaining about someone and I, I might have a point, but I'm not doing anything to restore or help that person. Okay. Edifying the conversation. It's not a it's a complaint about someone's sin as opposed right. to a, a restorative mindset of helping someone. Mm. Yeah. Showing about my kids. Quite often about my kids, complaining about them when I've done something wrong and actually I, I could quite easily forget what it was like I was like when I was a teenager. Yeah. Um, yes. Thank you. Uh, I think there are subtleties, and I think sometimes we are actually right. Oh, but yeah. sure. if we have, and there's a time, like you said, to, to ask for clarification, but if we have a really good friendships with each other, then we can sort through mm. stuff and work out what is the best way. And the worst thing is to be isolated. That's a very good point, mm. isn't it? The worst thing is to be isolated because you've got no chance of knowing really then whether you've got a problem with self-righteousness or whether you are actually right yeah. about something. Isolation is a killer. Let's, I'll have to wrap up. Sorry, I know there's other, I'm sure, interesting thoughts, but we can talk about that too, uh, amongst ourselves later. Um, just to wrap up, I think that one of the key things is friendships. And yesterday I had a dinner with some, some old friends. 
Um, my birthday is in February, as many of you will know, and it's been a tradition, along with some other people who have their birthdays in February, for us to have a dinner together once a year, and usually in February. We had to do it in March this year because of various things. And uh, so yesterday, uh, myself and Akin, some of us will know these men, and Dwight and Lolu, who are all birth February birthday people, and Andrew is actually uh, a January okay. birthday person, but he always... To join in the gate crasher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's the gate crasher, you know. Well, the invitation. That's what it's about. January. That's where the title of this comes in. How to get in. <laughs> 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 he just manages it somehow. So, we've been doing this for years, meeting up, and um, we sat and had a, a lovely Turkish meal yesterday down in uh, East Coast that Akin organized, and it was a fantastic time. They had to kick us out, you know, in the restaurant. They, said, they came several times to the table and said, excuse me, but you really need to leave. We have another booking, and okay, in a minute. And eventually they did, kicked us out. But the thing, one of the things that was wonderful about being together is we talked about loads of things got caught up online. But I've known some of these men, like I've known Lolu and Akin since about 1987. Wow. Andrew since 86. Dwight about 19... 90 or there, 91 or thereabouts, something like that. Uh, we've known each other for decades and decades. And the thing that we talked about amongst all the other things was how lucky we are. How lucky we are to still be together, to be friends, and to be with God. Because some of our other friends have not stayed the course with God. And we talked about them and mourned over that in many ways. Um, I don't think that we looked down on them, but we were just mournful they're not with us, but we were so grateful. We feel ourselves to be lucky. I think one of the signs of humility is gratitude, mm. isn't it? I don't deserve to be amongst these friends. I don't deserve to be with God. I am lucky. I am blessed. I am fortunate. Um, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven those who know they need God are those who will stay in the right state spiritually with their hearts before God with humility as C.S. Lewis said humility is not thinking less of yourself but thinking of yourself less mm. and the Pharisee doesn't seem to have got that right does he? it's about him that the tax collector knows he needs God if we, if we have this attitude of not being so absorbed with ourselves that we get caught up with ourselves, we won't struggle with the same issues of self-righteousness as the Pharisee in this parable. And we will be grateful for what God has done for us. Let's pray together.